Welcome to Side Effects May Vary, the podcast hosted by the Modash Faculty of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences, and I'm Divya Krishnan. Mm, say that again, Div. Monash Faculty of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences. Yeah, yeah, you knew that I wanted you to say that bit again because you're on the email chain. So for those of you who weren't on the email chain, which I assume is most of you, um, when Div and I first started this podcast, um, we're on about episode five now, I think, um, we sent the file for the first episode around to various people at the Monash Institute for Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences just to sort of get their reactions. And um, we got one email back that was otherwise really helpful, um, but did contain, and I'm just going to read verbatim, the following sentences. A minor point, but one we need to change going forward at least, and that is the pronunciation of pharmaceutical. It is pharmaceutical and not pharmaceutical. Drives some folks in the area crazy. As I say, this was otherwise a really, really helpful email full of lots of great feedback, but that particular sentence, it made me kind of nervous. Well, why did it make you nervous, John? You shouldn't have anything to be nervous about if you're saying it the proper way. Well, you see, I I thought it might be a shibboleth. Um, I thought it might be something that conveyed certain things about me to the listener that I didn't necessarily want them to know or wasn't aware that I was at least conveying and I thought it might be a marker of class or geography or something like that and it made me particularly nervous because I wasn't aware that this was a word that in Australian English had multiple pronunciations. Um, I, I think you can go pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical or pharmaceutical. I had just heard it all as the same thing. So I was I was just kind of worried that I was telling on myself without realizing it. Um, But I think I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. I should point out at this stage that this is in fact not going to be 35 minutes of me talking about my various class anxieties, although I would enjoy that a great deal. I'm not sure it's terribly interesting to you. Um, So I should pass over to Divya to tell you exactly what this episode is going to be about. So thanks, John. Let's cut you off with the linguistics obsession just for now and actually get into the nitty gritty of this episode. So as you might be aware, this episode is about opioids and it's actually a follow-up. So if you've been subscribing like you should be to our podcast, you would know that a couple of weeks ago, we uploaded an episode on opioids and their history. But we missed out on some of the stuff that we really wanted to deep dive into and we thought it deserved a second episode. So first, we'll be talking with Seamus O'Hanlon about the Melbourne music scene and its entanglement with opioids. And then we'll be chatting with Dan Poole, Simona Carboni and Nick Veldhaus. And they're going to be unpicking some really interesting concepts that we didn't really get the chance to get into last time about naturally occurring opioids and how they work to treat pain. And they're also giving us a really interesting glimpse into what the next frontiers of painkillers might look like. But before we do any of that, I needed to get this out of my system. So I spoke to Dr. Howard Manns from the School of Languages, Literatures, Cultures and Linguistics in the Faculty of Arts. He's a lecturer and a coordinator of the Undergraduate Linguistics Program, so he should know a thing or two about this question and what's the i've got to be honest i don't know a lot about the linguistics department at monash what's kind of the profile of it is it is does it is there something at which it excels or that it's you know that it has a particular focus on yeah it's historically been multilingualism i mean it's got a long history of multilingualism especially in intersecting with the business sphere um but we're in a bit of a transition period where there aren't any uh, universities, any linguistics programs in Australia that do sign language studies. Um, so that's one of the things that we're picking up on. And the other thing that we're picking up on is the study of Australian English. We're, we're starting to establish ourselves a little more clearly with that. 
So that's a that's actually a really good segue into what we're going to be talking about today, which is um, my correct and everybody else's incorrect pronunciation of the word pharmaceutical. If I were extremely happy, you would call me euphoric. Um, if I was skirting around an unpleasant subject, you might say that I was employing a euphemism. Um, and if you if uh, I was having an end of life decision, you might describe that as euthanasia. So therefore, if you would apply that rule, one would pronounce the word pharmaceutical with, a, a, I guess, I don't know how to describe the linguistic term, but a Y-O-O sound, a U sound. But I'm being told that actually one says pharmaceutical. I'm, I'm right, aren't I? <laughs> uh, let's say that you're keeping the older in the original pronunciation, um, because just as you were saying with euphemism and eureka, uh, Wherever we had these oo sounds in English historically and generally, there would always be this y sound that you're using. Um, but what's happened with pharmaceutical, uh, or as we might say, pharmaceutical, um, is that uh, this word is beginning to drop out, or rather this sound has been dropping out since about the 16th to the 17th century. And this is just something that happens in language gradually over time. Uh, these sounds drop out of language. Another example is the way that, you know, the word night is spelled K-N-I-G-H-T, and that's because if you go far enough back in history, it was knicht. And, um, you know, what's happening with pharmaceutical is essentially either this y sound is being lost or it's turning into a sh sound. And that's why, you know, on the one hand, we have words like um, educate or educate, um, but we also have words like issue and issue. Uh, your pronunciation of this pharmaceutical is uh, arguably the original one. I mean, it's the one that it's the one that is the original sound, but also it's the sound that you would be you would expect to find in Canada among at least some Canadian English speakers, and you would almost certainly find this uh, pharmaceutical pronunciation being used by um, you know uh, received pronunciation. You know those so-called Queen's English speakers. So what's happening here? How do we describe what's happening in the mouth in terms of forming the shape? What's the, what's the name of that process? Yeah, sure. Um, this Y sound, the Y sound, is something that we call in linguistics a palatal approximant. And what a palatal approximant is, firstly, approximant means that you're not fully closing the air in your mouth. Um, what you're doing is your tongue's coming up a little bit, and we call it a palatal um, because your tongue is going ever so slightly up toward the palate part of your uh, part of the inside of your mouth. So this is one of the reasons why, you know, in addition to the loss of this y sound and pharmaceutical, uh, for some Australian English speakers, it might even be pronounced uh, pharmaceutical, because what sometimes happens with this Y sound is that it disappears. But then in other instances, what happens is this palatal sound combines with the previous uh, sound. So where you have the S-like sound combined with this palatal y kind of thing, they combine together and they become sh because the sh sound is actually produced with your tongue up on your palate. So if I were the kind of person who wrote angry letters into the ABC about pronunciation, is this the kind of thing that people often complain about lazy Australian diction? 
Yeah, this is one of the things that come up. I mean, generally, even though the disappearance of sounds happens across different uh, English varieties and across even, you know, the language more generally, we're as language users trying to make, um, you know, our, our production of sound more efficient. Um, you know, this is the sort of thing that really gets up the nose of people. And, you know, this sure thing and the disappearance of years, one of these sounds that actually does get up people's noses. Um, I'm, I'm aware of some studies of this back in the 1980s. People looked at this particular sound. And what you find is that the sir sound, this, this sound that you typically use with pharmaceutical, um, is the pronunciation that older and higher socioeconomic Australians would use. And what's happening among the younger generation is that they're shifting either to pharmaceutical or they're shifting to pharmaceutical um, or similar pronunciations and other words. And whenever this happens, you'll find that the older speakers and also the speakers from a higher socioeconomic class will typically complain. They'll write these letters to the editor, as you say, and and call in the to call back radio to complain about these sounds. But, you know, from a linguistic perspective, we just see this as natural language uh, change in process. And whenever there's natural language change in process, people get angry about it. Part of the reason that I'm having this discussion with my superiors around the pronunciation of the word pharmaceutical is because it's coming off a sibilant, uh, as opposed to, say, therapeutic, which is a word that we use all the time, but also but seems to be uncontroversial. Yeah, and that's and that's that's the really interesting thing about this sound. And you know, to go back to what I was saying uh, earlier with this "oo" sound is um, in English. If you go back to the 15th century or the 16th century, is where wherever you had this "oo" sound, there was almost always a "y" before it. But then systematically, it actually began to fall out of usage. And I say systematically because it began to fall out of use uh, with specific or rather next to specific sounds. So it initially began to fall out of use next to sh, ch, and j, and then it began to fall out of use um, next to r, and then it began to fall out of use next to bl and pl. And then ultimately this sibilant, it falling up it falling out of usage next to sibilance, this s and z sound actually happened as a later process. So it it one of the final places it began to fall out of use was next to s, the sibilant sibilant, as you say, um, but also l and th. So, you know, a word like enthusiastic, um, you know, being enthusiastic. How long was this process taking us? Uh, it started. Um, it started interestingly right around the time that pharmaceutical and pharmaceutical entered English around the 16th to the 17th century. Um, this is when the sound began to fall out. And what's really interesting about this is the 16th and the 17th century were around the time that people um, people became obsessed with policing English and writing these grammars around English and having this sense that people should use English a particular way. Um, so that's when this process began. And that's when people began to be very you know, obsessed with trying to stop these sorts of processes. 
processes. Um, but And that's one of the reasons why these processes take so long. I mean, here we are in 2000, you know, in 2020, talking about a process that began in the 16th and 17th century and indeed is unfolding in different ways in different places. You know, just to shift briefly into Canada, this is one of those places where, um, you know, the Sioux, the, the Sioux pronunciation in Canada and the Sioux pronunciation in the U.S. used to be a shibboleth. I mean, you would expect that the Canadians would actually maintain this yod sound. We call it a yod, this Hebrew y kind of sound. Um, and the Americans, as I said earlier, actually lead the change. So because the Americans lead the change, what ended up happening was, you know, Canadians would speak one way, Americans would speak the other way. Um, but now the Canadians, uh, especially Canadians in the East, are beginning to lose this sound too. And that tends to be how it happens, just slowly and socially over time. Thanks so much for your time, Howie. That, that's really good. So what we've established is not necessarily that I'm right, but that I might be extremely old. <laughs> well, it, it's all about how you uh frame this, I suppose, it would be it. I mean, you're definitely not wrong. A linguist would take the perspective that uh, any of these pronunciations would be absolutely fine and expected under the circumstances. And yeah, just to summarize that this year sound historically and generally in English has always uh, or is found before this U sound. It's generally been dropping out in next to this S sound, as you said, this sibilant. What's happening is it's either disappearing completely or it's becoming sh. And from a linguistic perspective, these are just wonderful physiological processes that are almost certainly uh, going to cause some people some upset and um, people are going to grasp onto these changes and try to keep them from happening. But that's that's the beauty of language for a linguist. So if you're not aware, the Monash Institute of Pharmaceutical Sciences is headquartered in the city of Melbourne. Um, and our next guest is somebody who's really thought a lot about cities and in particular the forces that shape their cultural life. Um, so Melbourne is known for quite a few things, Div. Melbourne is really well known for its culture, its festivals, its coffee, its laneways and its biomedical research. In fact, in 2017, Nature Index released an interactive map to visualise the major biomedical research networks around the world. And it showed some pretty cool findings. Only two other cities in the world, Boston and London, compare to Melbourne's contribution of high-quality research collaboration in biomedical science. Seamus O'Hanlon has, as far as I know, written about none of those things, although um, we certainly didn't interview him about any of those things. What we did interview him about was live music. Um, a couple of years back, a live music census found that Victoria had more music venues per capita than any other city in the world. We had um, one venue per 9,503 residents, which is better than London or New York or LA. Um, and this is all the before the pandemic, of course. Who knows what's going to happen after the pandemic? Hopefully it's still there. Um, so Seamus has written quite a bit about Melbourne music. And one of the things that has really shaped Melbourne music at times is its entanglement with opioids. And so over to Seamus to talk a little bit about that. One of the things I spend a lot of time talking to people about is that, you know, places like London and New York and Berlin and Melbourne and Sydney and places like that, they were in real trouble in the 1970s and 1980s. As the, um, it was partly because of the industrialisation of Asia, 
but it was also because of changes in the economy. And so all the, the economies of those places had been based on factories and production. And when that all shipped offshore, these places were in real trouble. And it was just, there was genuine fear. These places were bleak. You know, there really was this sense of bleakness about the, the city. And there was a bleakness about the music as well. You know, the, the first wave of punk was really hard and fast. And it came out of the unemployment, etc. But it was a pure DIY, hard and fast. You know, a few strums, a, a few chords and a, a guitar and some drums, etc. But then the, the immediate post-punk era is a much more darker story. And that's where, uh, you know, the music sort of slows down and becomes much more um, internal looking and it becomes much more sort of bleak in its, in its output. And people start wearing black. And then people's hair, they dyed their hair black, their clothes were black, their shoes were black. And, you know, there was this sense of sort of looking inwards. It was very much sort of a bleak, internal-looking, inwards style of, style of music. And heroin was the drug for that. It was, a, it was an, one of those, you know, when, when you, you take other sorts of drugs, they're party drugs. No one calls heroin a party drug. Heroin, if you see people out of it on heroin, they're just sitting around on, on what, what's called on the nod. And they, you know, they're half asleep. They're just sitting, staring ahead of them. Um, they're not up partying, they're not jumping around, they're not doing things. And, uh, yeah, that was that was the time. That was the, 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 the music. Yeah, yeah, you talked about musicians liking this stuff. It goes back to jazz. I mean, the, the sort of the, the older styles of jazz, you know, around Charlie Parks and people like It's the same sort of stuff. It's really sort of intensely personal, intensely inward-looking sort of sound. And sort of post-punk music is very similar to that. And, you know, the lyrics associated with it are often bleak and, you know, they're often... Um, downward looking and we, you know, we think of some of the bands from this period like Joy Division and Ian Curtis and people like that yeah. and you know, he killed himself you know, this is kind of a, an era of really yeah, dark dark times in many ways and heroin seemed to fit that I mean the other story about this of course is um, Vietnam and post-Vietnam you know, many of the, the soldiers who went to Vietnam came back with heroin addictions because the drug was rife in Southeast Asia at that time. It was part of the economy of Southeast Asia. If you think about this period and you think about pop culture that depicts this period, it's often of these soldiers with serious um, mental and social issues living in bleak environments in these bleak inner-city neighbourhoods. I mean, and again, heroin came out of these. It was, you know, it was exported around the world as part of the Vietnam War. Yeah, it comes to... It, it, American soldiers don't come to Sydney, but they come to Melbourne. They come to Sydney, and you know, heroin gets into Sydney in a big way as part of the American soldiers. But um, slightly earlier, we're talking about here, but around the same sort of era. And it's, it's cheap. You know, heroin's really cheap at the time. I mean, mostly it's associated with what's called the St Kilda scene, which is the mm -hmm. punk scene that emerges out of St Kilda in the, the late nineteen seventies, uh, post punk scene. And it's you know we associate the Crystal Ballroom at the uh, the George Hotel, the Seaview Hotel, as it's sometimes called. There was also the Prince of Wales. They were both on Fitzroy Street. There was Bananas around the corner at a place called Earl's Court, and uh, the Esplanade, the the famous Espy Hotel. You know, again, they they attracted a young crowd, uh, really young. There was you know, many of them were sort of eighteen or nineteen straight out of school, and it was that sort of grinding post-punk sound sort of loud, noisy, etc. And, yeah, St Kilda was in those days the, uh, the sort of epicentre of heroin in, in, in um, Melbourne. 
and it was very closely associated with um, Sydney and King's Cross, which was the sort of the import centre for the whole country. And so, I mean, I first came to Melbourne in the mid-1980s, and I remember distinctly people basically just standing around outside this, the, um, the uh, fish and chip shops and the amusement parlours, etc. that used to line uh, Fitzroy Street, just selling drugs. It was quite open. There was, you know, it, it wasn't hidden whatsoever. If you read the, sort of the memoirs of, of, of this period and you really read the sort of people that document, all, they all talk about how much drug use there was, and especially how much heroin use was. And the other thing, it's in all of these stories, is how many of them are dead. You know, so many of them were overdosed at the time or and since they've died of um, liver disease or um, um, hepatitis or whatever. And it's very much one of the tropes of this story that, uh, you know, everyone was using heroin, everyone was into this sort of stuff and everyone was sharing needles. This is pre-AIDS, of course, as well. And so sharing needles was very common. And there was no sense that you, know, you, you just didn't share needles. You, 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 you just did. I, I'm slightly later than this group, so I, I, I wasn't really, I, I don't, I, I know them from, as a historian rather than personally. But uh, yeah, I, there used to be stories about in the um, sort of the, the sort of tacky fish and chip shops and hamburger shops on, that used to lie in Fitzroy Street. That there were holes in the um, spoons because people would steal them and to, 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 to brew up their, their heroin. The famous movie, Dogs in Space, which was um, made in 1986 by Richard Lowenstein, it's actually set in a share house in uh, Richmond where he lived. And it's basically about heroin. And one of the, all the characters, Michael Hutchins, of course, was the main star of this. And um, he, he's into heroin, but his uh, girlfriend dies of a heroin overdoses. As you may know, there's a documentary was made about it in 2009 called We Living on Dog Food which is an Iggy Pop song, and um, they basically, and the, the final scene of this is this, this, this roll call of the people that have died ever since. So, you know, um, Nick Cave's still alive. Nick Cave's usually the one who's most commonly associated with this, but Roland Howard, you know, who wrote Shivers, he, he's dead. Many, many others have dead. Others have had a liver transplants, etc. So it's part of that world. If you listen to part one of this episode, um, you may have come away with a few questions. For example, we spoke with Simon Bell about the emerging prescription opioid problems that are sort of starting to happen in Australia and have been happening for quite some time in the United States. And one of the distinctions he drew was between the treatment of acute pain and the treatment of chronic pain and the idea that um, opioids are really, really good gold standard treatment for acute pain, but perhaps are quite problematic when it comes to chronic pain. But we didn't really explain why that was. So we wanted to delve into that a bit more. And the best people to do that for us were actually Simona, Dan and Nick here from MIPS to talk about the differences really between acute pain and chronic pain and how opioids can play a really good role in the first one, but create some nasty side effects for the second one. So it turns out to do that, you actually have to take a step back and understand in the first place how opioids work to block pain. You'll recall that in the first part of this episode, we spoke quite extensively with Dr. Chris Langmead about how opioids work in terms of dependence and addiction in the brain and where that lives in the brain and, and how that functions with the receptors. So this is kind of the other part of that deal, the other side of the story, how they work in terms of interrupting pain signals. 
So here's Amy Chen in conversation with Dr. Dan Paul, Dr. Simona Carboni, and Dr. Nick Veldhaus. Together they lead the Integrated Neurogenic Mechanisms Lab here at MIPS. If you're looking for a way to distinguish the two male speakers in this conversation, um, Nick Veldhaus is from Australia, Dan Paul, like me, is from New Zealand, which means I guess that he would pronounce pharmaceutical the same way I would, like some sort of 16th century French dandy. We don't have any audio of that, it's a real oversight on my part, so I guess you'll just have to take my word for it. What is the purpose of pain? Why do we feel pain? Essentially, the way we describe pain is as, as an essential uh, phenomenon that you need to survive. You, it's it's uh, a way that we can sense our environment and respond to uh, harmful um, uh, situations and, and stimulus stimuli. I think a good example of that is there are people out there who don't feel pain. And one of the major problems is that they injure themselves, they burn themselves, things like that without realizing it. I mean, that highlights that pain is a protective mechanism. It's very important. We can't just turn it off. We do still need pain. But when it becomes you know, damaging to ourselves and, and debilitating, that's when we need to treat it. Yeah, another point to raise is that not all pain is the same. So the pain you might experience when you um, put your hand on a sharp object or, or a burn um, is very much that protective mechanism we're talking about. But then when it goes wrong and you get um, acute pain, so in conditions like um, endometriosis where people experience pain over a prolonged period or um, if you have severe back pain um, where you can't sleep and it doesn't recover, um, there that's where the pain process goes wrong and you might need to seek a treatment, different kind of treatment compared to something that's more immediate. Yeah, and I think all of us would have had experience when where we feel a lot of pain to the point that we can't have every normal function anymore. Like all we can think about is pain. Um, so how do these drugs work? How do opioids treat pain? So uh, opioids uh, act by, um, by binding to a class of receptors known as opioid receptors. There are three major receptors in that family and uh, essentially they are found on your sensory neurons and they're also found in your central nervous system, so in your spine and in your brain. So if I just focus on the, um, the, the centrally mediated effects, for example, what you might find is that if you have, have some sort of pain, surgery is a really good one. So post-surgery, you clearly have some sort of injury going on and you, you'd be feeling pain, a lot of pain immediately after that surgery. If, for example, if you um, were under a, a general, general anesthetic and then you wake up, you'd be feeling pain if you didn't have opioids. So you take it. And what it's doing is it's actually blocking the signal. So there's an electrical signal that's being sent from that injury site up to your brain, and it's essentially stopping it in its tracks. Those cell surface detectors of opioids that Nick mentions detect these naturally occurring opioids that I mentioned earlier. These are the same sites as where these drugs are acting. They're also present in your intestine, and that's why you get things like opioid-induced constipation. It's acting through the same mechanism, but in this case, it's a bad thing. You don't want constipation. Probably a really good point, isn't it? Because you have so many different sites. So everywhere that it, uh, it's, it's bound uh, could be causing the effects you want, but also unwanted effects. So the, the constipation is a really, really good one in that case. So it seems like there is quite a difference between um, acute pain and chronic pain and the treatment of these two different types. Um, can you go into a little bit more detail about the differences? 
Uh, as we said before, acute pain is, is really useful and, and it allows you to respond to your environment. And so if you have just a, a, an acute injury, for example, a scratch or uh, a burn or even like you step on a tack, for example, you, you feel that pain and your body immediately kicks in some behaviors to make sure you move away from that potential um, situation so that you can avoid further injury. And as a part of that process, um, you have processes like immune cells moving into an area to trigger wound healing. So pain is intimately linked to that wound healing process. In terms of chronic pain, you're going to have situations where, for example, you might have neuronal damage, chronic diseases such as diabetes, uh, chronic inflammation, for example, like arthritis, where there are uh, there is damaged tissue present and then that can actually lead to release of painful mediators which will trigger pain over sustained periods of time. And it's different to that acute pain response and also very difficult to treat. Is chronic pain useful or is it simply a disease-related thing? That's a good question, isn't it? I mean, so we have dysregulation of pain systems which might lead to pain and it might not be useful. But presumably if you have arthritis, that would suggest that you've got some sort of an injury that needs to be uh, cared for and monitored over time. So I guess it depends on what's the cause of the chronic pain. Is it because of impaired signalling processes or is it because the damage is just constantly present? That's the difference. And at what point does it become chronic pain as opposed to acute pain? Is there like a clear delineation between the two? I think that's a little bit... Uh, that's a complex question. And there, for example, you might have... Um, going back to the example of post-surgery, you might have an injury which takes a little bit longer to heal than for, uh, for one patient compared to another. And so there is a bit of a grey area there, um, but typically we describe it as acute pain where you would feel it within minutes to hours or perhaps days, and then after normal wound healing processes have taken place that you'd actually resolve that pain over time. Now, as a part of that, you can actually get some changes to your nerves. So, for example, I successfully cut the tip of my thumb off this summer in a freak gardening accident. And now, my, although my thumb has grown back, I actually, the sensation at the tip of my thumb will never be the same. So, clearly, the nerve terminals at the end of my thumb are not functioning the same way as they do before. It's not painful, but the sensation is different. So, what about the treatment um, of acute versus chronic pain? You mentioned briefly just before that it's different. So acute, acute in terms of stepping, that example of stepping on a nail, probably not necessarily going to treat pain in that instance, but perhaps a better example might be uh, if you have a headache, you can either treat that from the pain side of things with a paracetamol or you could use something like uh, people can use anti-inflammatories because the reason for that pain might be to do with... Um, uh, tension and inflammation in the muscles and the region around the head, for example. So I guess what's more important when it comes to thinking about the different ways that pain medication is given, rather than comparing acute versus chronic treatment options, it's probably more important to think of the level of pain that a person is experiencing. So you've got over-the-counter medications, which would generally be used to treat um, low-level pain Incidences, so say you um, might roll your foot, might roll your ankle, 
and you might need to take either an anti-inflammatory or a paracetamol to treat the pain in that instance, but then by the next day the pain goes away and you're okay. Uh, but then again, you might get constant headaches, and so that would be more of a chronic condition. Again, not a great level of pain, but you might take paracetamol on a regular basis, um, for example. You might have an acute situation where, say, you are uh, going into labour and you uh, need an epidural to treat the pain, which is quite extreme, but only goes for a relatively, hopefully, short amount of time. Um, and then um, and then you don't need it again. But that is a higher level painkiller than, say, your paracetamol would be. Seeing as we had Nick and Dan and Simona in the room, we thought that it would be a really good idea to get them to share with us their research, which is all about what's next in pain management. Can we enhance the efficacy of pain management drugs? Can we decrease their side effects? Can we improve them in some way? This is the sort of thing that Dan and Simona and Nick are looking at. A lot of their explanations hinge upon the stuff they were talking about in the first part of the interview. So understanding the pathways by which pain signals travel and perhaps some of the other receptors that might be implicated in the pain pathways, not just opioid receptors. A lot of their research focuses on more targeted ways to deliver painkillers. So the idea is that if you can deliver a painkiller to the specific point where it will do the most good, then you need to use less of it, and so you get fewer side effects or less intense side effects. Um, and a lot of the discussion is about the ways that you could affect that delivery. But anyway, I'll, I'll hand it over to them. So one of our major areas of research is understanding how these receptors or targets of the opioids are regulated, where they are even within a cell and how that defines the type of output that you get. Does it cause tolerance? Does it promote uh, chronic constipation? Uh, those types of things. Um, understanding where the receptors are, so the types of cells that they're expressed by, as well as the idea that different types of opioid receptors can talk to each other to give a unique uh, signaling output with a unique effects on the gut. So the other side of the uh, the pain type of research that we do in our lab is to look at opioid alternatives. So we we realise that there could be benefit in um, be a better understanding of opioid signaling pathways. So we could, for example, make better drugs or. Um, uh, modify current drugs so that they just have slightly different properties. So the alternative to that is to just look at other receptors that are in the pain pathway. So with opioid receptors, you are essentially activating what's known as like an analgesic receptor. But there are also uh, other receptors in the pain pathway which are actively involved in triggering neurons to fire all of the time, for example, in a chronic pain state. So there are many receptors that we could block so that we can block pain transmission. There are a number of different ways that we can do this, but one of the main ways that we are looking at this is by uh, interacting with a number of different scientists from different disciplines. So for example, in the nanomedicine field and in the drug delivery field. And so the goal there is to actually see if we can get certain drugs to be delivered to specific neurons or specific locations within neurons so that we can get a better pain block. And so hopefully by doing this, we can perhaps come up with some alternatives uh, to opioids and, and that might lead, allow us to avoid some of those complications uh, with opioids. Have you had much success with this approach, Nick? That's a very good question, Dan. 
So far, we've, we have some uh, candidate drug delivery systems, which uh, seem to be quite effective. So one of the other key strategies that we have is by using very specific drug delivery systems, which we simply call nanoparticles. And nanoparticles can mean a lot of things, but um, essentially what we're talking about is something that is you know, extremely tiny. We're talking less than one thousandth the width of a human hair that can actually uh, contain a drug and it can um, be distributed throughout your body. But then we have what we call a stimulus responsive delivery system. So it might only release a drug within a certain place within your body. So that's the, the current theory or the current goal. And we currently have some very promising results to suggest that we can specifically release a drug at a damaged site um, to increase its analgesic output and avoid some of those side effects that we would want to avoid. Yeah, so that example of a stimulus-mediated release is really potentially important for pain. So some examples of stimuli, Nick, include um, like the pH or the acidity of the environment in a potentially damaged area, this is all hypothetical, um, in a damaged area could be a stimulus, or um, the fact that some cells, when they're damaged, they, um, their electrical properties change, and that could be a stimulus as well. Um, so it's pretty cool potential uh, technology that we could harness. Yeah, that's right. Just to be able to harness nanotechnology to deliver drugs to specific places could be used for pain but also many other diseases as well certainly it's been uh, taken up into the cancer field and people are really trying to focus on ways to deliver drugs for example to a solid tumor so we're trying to use similar technology but to see if we can deliver drugs to a site where pain is being produced That was part two of our episode on opioids. This episode was produced by Dave Rogers with assistance from Amy Chen. And if you like listening to us, hit subscribe on wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our guests Howie Manns, Seamus O'Hanlon, Simona Carboni, Nick Valdhouse and Dan Paul. The music that you're hearing under the end credits is by the local Melbourne band Slow Fades and the song was called The City Is Sinking. That's no joke